So if you've been here the last three weeks, you've had three different speakers. So Element's kind of like a box of chocolates, I guess. You just never know who you're going to get. Uh, this morning, if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back corner uh, by the sound area over there. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one, take it home with you. If you forgot your Bible, just go ahead and grab one and use it today. So, my name is Eric Jafruti. I'm one of the elders here at Element, and I'd like to, to welcome you here. And uh, we are in Esther chapter 2, so if you want to get a head start, you can turn to Esther chapter 2. But Why don't we first stand and uh, join me for the reading of God's Word. Oh, I forgot to mention, film and theology, I know it was already mentioned, but this Friday night, we want to encourage everybody to come out. It was a great time. I, too, wasn't there, but I heard it was great. I did see the prestige, though, and I, and I thought that was pretty good, too. But it, uh, it sounds interesting. So we invite you to come on out. This is Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you, Father, for your power to work in our lives. Father, we thank you that you are also gracious and that you love us so much and that you take all of the events of our lives and you work them for your good purposes. And so, Lord, we want to give you glory this morning. We pray that you would teach us through what we learn about Esther's life today. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Have a seat. Okay, so you've probably heard it said, or maybe you've even experienced it yourself, that God works in mysterious ways. Now, the book of Esther has some great examples of just how mysterious those ways can actually be. The Apostle Paul, he wrote in Romans 8, uh, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And as we'll see in chapter 2, that even though the author is silent about God's involvement in the story, God is nonetheless working all things according to His purposes, even when they can't see or feel Him, and even when they don't always make the right choices. And this knowledge should be great encouragement for you and for me. So we're in Esther chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And verse 1 says, Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. And let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So it says the king remembered Vashti. This indicates remorse over how he treated Vashti, but he couldn't go back and he couldn't reverse his previous royal decree. Several years had passed since Vashti being banished as queen in this search for her replacement. Now, most commentators, they think that this search begins after the king returned from this terrible military defeat by Greece. And so the king's deflated and he turns to sensual overindulgence, kind of like you and I when we're depressed or when we're unhappy. And he looks for comfort in his harem. And according to the historian Herodotus, he even messes around with some of the wives of some of his officers. And this is probably what actually led to his assassination in his own bedroom in 465 B.C. And we see in verse 2 that his attendants try to comfort him with a plan to increase his harem 
in this search for Vashti's replacement. Now, we saw the original idea of getting rid of King ba Queen Vashti in Esther chapter 1, in verse 19. And it says, Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. What could be better? Who could be better than Vashti? I mean, after all, Vashti means beautiful. But by better, the king's advisors meant that somebody who is just as beautiful, yet more compliant than Vashti, somebody who would toe the royal line and who would be submissive to her husband, the king. Yet, strangely enough, nobody decided to do a character assessment before they went on this journey. There's enough, this is just another example that shows us the truth of what the Lord spoke to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16:7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But really, we shouldn't be surprised by all of this because the plan, this actual plan, was proposed by the king's personal attendants. Now, who are these guys? They're like the king's bodyguards. So these are most likely some high testosterone young buff dudes that like to fight. Now, what do you think tops their list of criteria in the search for Vashti's replacement? There's only three things. She's got to be young, she's got to be single, and she's got to be totally hot. That's it. <laughs> One girl was to be selected from each of the 127 provinces. And the king, he already had a pretty robust harem at this point. And now he's going to be adding another 127 girls to his harem. I mean, really, 127. I mean, you know, it's hard for us, I know, in our day and age to imagine a culture ever existed that was so superficial where middle-aged men would try to show their wealth and power and impress other people by attracting women half their age. I mean, I know it's hard for us to believe. It just doesn't happen, but, um, well, okay, maybe once in a while it does. But I mean, this is like a reality show. It's like Persia's next top lady, or it's like The Bachelor Persian style. I mean, it's, it's crazy. But seriously, though, this was more than just looking for the next Miss Congeniality. I mean, after all, it wasn't like they signed up for this contest. The power of the king to gather beautiful young virgins from throughout the empire, I mean, it's, it's offensive to our modern sensibilities. But we have to understand what life in the kingdom was like back then. People existed for the empire, and they were at the disposal of the empire. Feminist critics, they especially criticize this herding of virgins, if you will, as a demeaning and a sexist affront to women. And who can, who can argue with that? I mean, you just can't. But Herodotus reports also that 500 young boys were gathered and castrated each year for service in the Persian court. I mean, I would actually argue the girls got the better deal in this situation. <laughs> I mean, this is not sexism. It's just a brutal fact about how power was used in the Persian court. Everybody, male and female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. And it tells us here that Haggai was one of the key eunuchs responsible for the women in the harem. He was in charge of preparing the girls for their big date, if you will, with the king. So now we're in verse 5. And it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried, carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. 
This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here, we're introduced to Mordecai, and and what we learn is that he was either a second or a third generation Jewish, Jewish exile because one of his ancestors was carried away during the reign of King, ne- King Nebuchadnezzar. That's a tough one. In 597 B.C. We see a clash of cultures here as Mordecai's identified as a Jew with a kosher genealogy going all the way back to the golden days of Israel. But, his, but exile defined his entire existence. He was actually born in exile. So he would have known nothing other than life in the Persian Empire. And it would have been over a hundred years since the destruction of his homeland. But he and his people, we see, had not been completely assimilated into the Persian culture. His name Mordecai is actually a Hebraized form of the name Marduka, which comes from the uh, Babylonian god Marduk. And it means man or worshiper. Now, this didn't mean that he worshipped Marduk, but that he took the name or a name from the culture in which he lived. And this is something that we see is true for Esther also. Esther here, she's first introduced by her Hebrew name, Hadassah, as Mordecai's cousin, whom uh, whom he brought up because she was an orphan. And she's described to us as beautiful. The NIV says that she was lovely in form and features. The ESV says it this way. She was, she was, the ESV says she, was, she had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at. In other words, on a scale of 1 to 10, Esther was a 12. I mean, visually speaking, which is all the empire cared about, both then as well as now, she was doubly blessed and she exceeded the minimum qualifications. Actually, according to the ancient rabbis, Esther was one of the four most beautiful women in the world, the other three being Sarah, Rahab, and Abigail. Now, Esther here, she's the only person in the story with two names mentioned, her Hebrew name and her Babylonian name. And this wasn't unusual for Jews to take a second name from the culture in which they lived. We have other examples, like Daniel and his three friends who were also given Babylonian names when they were in exile. Um, The Apostle Paul, who was also called Saul. And there's many examples throughout the scripture. Actually, this is still practiced today by a lot of immigrants to the U.S. They take anglicized forms of their given name. Actually, this happened to my father and my uncle when they migrated here in the early 60s from Iran, or Persia as it's historically and culturally uh, referred to. My dad's name was Hossein, and he took the name John. And my uncle's name was Mahmoud, and he took the name Mike. And in their case, it just made it easier for them to assimilate into the American society and culture. And these names were familiar, and they were just easier to pronounce. So it just made sense. So having two names here, though, we see that these names are derived from different languages, from different cultures. It implies that a person is in transition between two different worlds with two different cultural contexts. In the case of Esther, her Jewish identity and that of a Persian king's consort They're not integrated at this point in the story. She couldn't be both at the same time. But later in the story, we're going to see that both of her identities begin to merge as she's later referred to the Persian queen Esther, the Jewish daughter of Abihail. Let's look at verse 8. And when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. 
He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Many beautiful girls were taken from the empire to the king's palace, and Esther was one of them. And again, she, they didn't have much choice in the matter. We don't know how they felt about this. We don't know how she felt about this. Some girls were taken. Other girls were left behind. Maybe some were actually disappointed. I mean, for some, this could have been a much better life than they otherwise would have had. Now, granted, they were being prepared for a one-night stand with a king that would lead directly into a life of meaningless existence. But at least it would be a luxurious existence. They would become living dolls that the king would play with once, and then they would be ignored. Of all the beautiful virgins that were taken into the custody of Haggai, it says that Esther won his favor. Now, this would be in contrast to perhaps God granting her favor, as he did for Daniel and his friends who found themselves in a similar situation, or her finding favor, if you will, in his eyes. This implies that beyond her natural assets, Esther actively worked to succeed in this beauty contest. She was playing to win, and she was willing to let the empire define her reality. You know, maybe it was her compliant attitude and spirit that won his favor. We see this characteristic actually in verse 10, um, where Mordecai commands her to conceal her Jewish identity, and she does it. Esther was the perfect anti-Vashti, if you will. She was beautiful, yet she was submissive. Now, whatever it was, and we don't know, Haggai gave her a head start with the beauty treatments. He gave her special food. He assigned seven choice maids that would attend to her in the best area of the harem. And verse 10, though, is key to understanding this part of the story. Why does Mordecai command Esther to conceal her nationality and her family background? The scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know. Maybe he thought that her chances of success with the king would have been ruined if he knew that she was Jewish. Maybe he had good reason to fear that there was anti-Semitism that was lurking nearby. We really don't know. But whatever his motive, her obedience to Mordecai would mean compromising whatever faithfulness she had to the Torah, to God's word. It just would have meant compromise for her. You know, some actually look back and they praise Esther and they hold her up as an example of submission to authority. Some criticize her for compromising her faith. But one thing we need to remember as we look at this story that there is no judgment made here in Esther by the author. God is silent about her actions. Is she an example for us, for women to follow? Submission to godly authority is good. We know that. But there comes a time when we need to speak up, we need to stand up, and we need to trust God for the outcome. We need to know when enough is enough. Esther won the favor of everybody in the empire, but she earned it by going with the flow, not by making waves um, and by hiding who she really was, a Jew, a child of the Most High God. Jesus, he prayed in um, John chapter 17, verses 14 through 16. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. At this point in the story, Esther is both in the world and she's of the world. Each of us has to determine how we will live in this worldly kingdom without being of it. We are also called to live in the kingdom of God, where God's 
where God rules in the lives of his people, where God's will is our great king is done, not ours. You know, some believe this story was written to instruct Jews living in the diaspora how to survive and thrive in a pagan culture where anti-Semitism was a serious threat. You know, how would they maintain their relationship to the one true God in this polytheistic pagan society? Should they keep their distinct clothing, their language, the customs, which identified them as Jews? Would being assimilated into the culture they were living compromise their faith? You know, these are the tough questions that believers still must face today. The Hasidic Jews of Brooklyn, for example, they believe that faithfulness to the Torah requires distinctively separate dress and manners and customs from our modern culture in which they live. Other Jews, they don't have a problem assimilating in the culture in which they live in, at least to some extent, while keeping the distinctives of their Jewish faith. The same is true for Christians throughout the world today. Paul said in Ephesians 4.17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And in Romans 12.2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The interesting thing here for you and I are there are huge differences. I didn't say that right, huh? There are huge differences. I always get, I always get made fun of by the way I say huge. There are huge differences in how believers understand and apply this today. Um, consider the Amish of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. We got a picture? Yeah. They've determined to do this by maintaining the 19th century lifestyle, which they consider holy. And they avoid the modern world with all of its evil conveniences, if you will. Many still ride in horse and buggy, and they live without telephones and electricity. These are Amish girls on spring break. <laughs> the extent to which believers like us adopt the culture and society that we live in is a big deal for us as individuals, as well as for, as missionaries, which you and I are called to be in this world. Sincere Christians wanting to obey God's word, they often disagree on how to dress or whether or not to drink alcohol, what music, what other forms of entertainment are appropriate, and many other issues. A missionary going into another culture has to really think hard when he's taking the gospel to them. What are the non-negotiables of the Christian faith? And what are the cultural options? Relating our faith to culture is something that we face every single day, yet most of us live without thinking seriously about its implications. Let's see how Esther deals with her circumstances. Verse 12. Esther 2, verse 12. Before a, girl's, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil or, of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to, given to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go there, and in the morning she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shahashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Okay, how many of you have ever spent more than an hour getting ready for a date? Anybody? I mean, this includes everything. Getting your hair done, maybe you got to get your nails done, find an outfit, all of that. How many of you have ever spent more than two hours getting ready for a date? Oh, I see a hand. How many of you have ever spent more than four hours getting ready for a date? Okay, how many of you actually had more fun getting ready for the date than you did on the actual date itself? Yeah? Okay. We see here, Xerxes spared no expense preparing his women for one night in his bed. I mean, 12 months. 12 months being lotioned and perfumed with 
spices and fragrant oils. Actually, archaeologists have excavated ancient spice burners once thought to be used in religious rituals. They actually now think that they are cosmetic uh, burners used by women to perfume their skin and their clothes with the oils of roses and cloves and musk, scents that are still popular today. They would actually crouch down naked over these burners with their robes draped over them um, like a tent, and then their skin would just soak in all of the fumes. And after 12 months of preparation and before their big night with the king, a woman could ask for anything that she wanted, the scripture says, to take to the king. Now, it's not certain what this meant. We don't really know, but it could refer to anything from jewelry or clothing that she would be allowed to keep afterwards, maybe kind of like a wedding gift or maybe like services rendered, all the way to aphrodisiac potions and even other items to enhance sexual pleasure. We don't know. But after one night in the king's bed, the woman was then taken to a different part of the harem where the concubines were kept. And there she would spend the rest of her life in luxurious but desolate seclusion. She couldn't leave to marry or she couldn't return to her family. She wouldn't even see the king again unless he summoned her and asked for her by name. Verse 15. And when the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to the king in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Esther's beauty treatments are now finished, and now it's her turn to go to the king. Nothing is said about how Esther felt about her situation. And notice here, she defers to Haggai as to what she should bring with her into the king. You know, maybe she hated the circumstances, and she just didn't care what the outcome was going to be. Or maybe knowing that she won Haggai's favor, she simply trusted his expert knowledge as what the king would desire the most. We don't really know. Verse 17, And now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. As you can see, this section of scripture is loaded with sexual innuendo. The description of the period of preparation and the competition that Esther faced, it creates this sensual atmosphere where we just can't help but wonder how exactly did she win the king in just one night with him? Did God grant her favor? It doesn't tell us that. It doesn't explain it that way. Whatever it was, it's certain that this young Jewish virgin did whatever it took to please this lustful pagan king. And so Xerxes, he takes the royal crown and he puts it on her head, the same crown that Vashti refused to appear in, and he makes Esther queen. And although the word marriage isn't used here, it's implied that Jewish Esther marries Gentile Xerxes. And that is a huge deal. Because this took place around the same time that other Jews had returned to Jerusalem and they were concerned about reestablishing their relationship with God. And Ezra actually strongly condemned those who married Gentiles and even insisted on their divorce. We see that in Ezra chapter 9, verse 12, and 10.10. And 10. Again, we're not told how Esther felt about her circumstances. She may have hated them with all of her heart. She may have felt that life in the harem violated every conviction that she believed in. Maybe she even wondered how God could have let this terrible thing happen to her. On the other hand, 
Maybe the sensuality of the harem life actually appealed to a part of her nature. Maybe she liked having the attention of the most powerful man in the empire and that this was the best thing that could have happened to her. Perhaps she knew that her lifestyle actually violated the Torah but didn't really care. Was Esther in God's will or wasn't she? The scripture's silence on these issues, it makes it impossible for us to consider Esther a role model at this stage in her life. I mean, what are the lessons that we would take from her for our teenage girls today? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men, or use your body to advance God's kingdom, or the end justifies the means. So if she's not an example at this stage, then what do we learn from her and from Mordecai's experience so far? We see that this story of Esther and Mordecai, it raises the issue of how far we should go as believers to conceal our faith in a culture that is or that might be hostile to our beliefs. Western believers, like you and I, you know, we really are not at risk of being identified as Christians. Um, believers, though, in other parts of the world, under communist regimes, uh, control, in the areas controlled by Muslim fundamentalists, they risk their lives all the time being identified as a Christian. A good example, Christians in Germany during the time of Hitler, they're a perfect example within this last century. Many Christian pastors swore allegiance to Hitler in the beginning, not knowing where his leadership would go and take Germany in the end. Other Christian leaders, they found themselves targets of the Gestapo uh, for protecting their Jewish neighbors. Many were charged with political treason, just like the Romans did to the first century believers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may have heard that name, who was actually one of the best known from that era, that resisted the Nazification of the German church and the oppression of the Jewish people. He and many others, they struggled with how to express their faith and their Christian identity in a society that was becoming increasingly hostile to their fundamental convictions. He was ultimately assassinated, uh, executed by the Gestapo in 1945 on the charge of treason. Each of us, you and I, we have to decide how we're going to live without knowing how things will turn out in the end. But what we do know is that Jesus calls for the transformation of every area of our lives. So we must be able to relate our Christian faith to the practices and to the morals of the culture that we live in, regardless of whether this culture is tolerant or hostile to our faith. There are times in each of our lives where we're tempted to conceal whom we serve, or refuse to confront somebody who needs to hear the truth because we want to please people and we want to avoid conflict. Many times, like Esther, the pressure comes from within one's own family. I mean, she wasn't commanded to deny her faith, only to conceal it to avoid potential problems. But there are times when we need to throw a sanctified fit. We need to throw a fit over these unsanctified demands of one's family and this worldly kingdom. Esther followed Mordecai's advice here to hide her Jewishness. And she ended up eating the empire's food, and she ended up being uh, used as the king's plaything. And you contrast this with Daniel and his friends who stood up to the empire quietly but firmly, requesting permission to be faithful to their beliefs by not eating the royal food. And they received that permission, and God blessed them against all odds. They remained unassimilated, and yet they were respected by the empire because of God's direct intervention in their life. Sometimes it works out that way for you and I as well when we stand up against the empire. But you have to be ready for the consequences because sometimes you might actually be thrown into the lion's den. And if God chooses to deliver you, well then great. But if he doesn't, isn't our God worthy of such sacrifices?
Is it really a, such a big deal for you and I to hide our faith in order to fit in with the business environment or to earn the friendship of our peers? We see here that caving into the pressure and concealing our faith, it might lead to progress in the world, but at what cost to our souls? Also, we see here that the silence about Esther and Mordecai's character and spiritual fidelity is a powerful encouragement to you and I. Regardless if they always knew what was the right choice or whether they had the best motives, God was working even through their imperfect decisions and imperfect actions to fulfill His perfect purposes. The godliest people of the Bible, apart from Jesus, they were flawed, they were often confused, and they were sometimes outright disobedient. In other words, they were just like you and me. They were the same as us. But our gracious God and King, He works omnipotently and omnisciently through them. He works through us. And He even works through the political uh, systems that sometimes operate in evil ways. We see here in this story that disobedience has far-reaching effects and consequences. But God is gracious to His people and He is powerful enough to keep His promises and achieve His purposes through it all. Mordecai and Esther, they found themselves in very compromising circumstances because they were held captive in another kingdom. And why was this? Because their great-grandparents were disobedient to God's commands and God allowed them to be exiled from their homeland. Mordecai and Esther were born in captivity. But we need to, we need to know, they didn't have to stay there. They didn't have to stay. Under King Cyrus's decree, the Jews were allowed to return to their homeland. And many of them did return to reestablish their relationship with God. But Mordecai chose to stay in the city of Susa where all of the action was instead of returning to the backwater town of Jerusalem. It's possible things could have turned out different had he returned. Maybe Esther wouldn't have been such an easy target. Maybe she wouldn't have had to hide her faith. But through it all, we see that their previous disobedience didn't disqualify them for future obedience to the Lord. And that's an important message for us today. We see that God is still in control of every single detail, even when we make the wrong choices. Whether by mistake or deliberately, God can providentially paint a beautiful picture out of the messes that you and I make. This is incredible news for you and I today, especially if we find ourselves in circumstances today because of past sin and compromise. There's hope here for somebody who married the non-Christian spouse even though they knew it was wrong. Or for those who chose a career based on the wrong reasons or wasted a lifetime chasing after the wrong goals. Or for those who have done so much worse, you'll find that God is sovereign even over our sinful choices and over our wasted opportunities. How have we come to the place where we find ourselves today, both geographically and spiritually, whether it was our parents' decisions or whether it was our own, we can know that God is providentially working in our lives to fulfill His good purposes. Our previous mistakes and disobedience don't disqualify us for future obedience. Maybe God has brought us to where we are today so that He can use us in a unique way. And if so, that doesn't make those wrong decisions right or those sinful actions right, but it should cause us to give thanks to our gracious God who mysteriously causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, this past week, uh, Terry and I, we had a chance to meet with a young couple who's thinking about getting married, and they were asking us about our story. And, and as Terry was describing our experience, you know, she was talking about some of the mistakes that we had made and some of the, 
the choices that we made that really, literally, drastically changed the course of our life. And looking back, I mean, those were difficult times, and we felt, you know, bad about the situation. But then as we considered where God has taken us, I'm just blown away. I had to sit there and just think, God is so faithful. He can take the things that we totally screw up, and He can make something beautiful out of it. He can use those experiences in our lives to help somebody else. And then just the other day, she was able to minister to, Terry was able to minister to a girl who was actually going through the exact same thing that she had to face so many years ago. And it's just amazing to me to think that, that God loves each one of us so much that he can take our mistakes and he can turn them around and make something beautiful out of them. Our past failures, they don't write us out of a significant part of God's script for the future. You see, God is not finished writing our story. For some people, it's easy to look at other people's decisions and to judge them, thinking that you know, we know right from wrong and that we would have done the right thing if we were in their shoes. It's easy to talk about because any theoretical situation can be defined simply enough so that the choices are clear. But we can find ourselves in troubled situations where you know, right and wrong, it's not always so clear. And real life, as some of you know, is not always neat and not always tidy. We can find ourselves you know, facing choices where there's a mix of good and bad. And it's in those times of great struggle that the last thing we want is for others to make simplistic moral judgments about our lives. This episode in Esther's life, it offers great encouragement and great comfort when we find ourselves facing those difficult decisions or in the aftermath of a bad decision because only God knows the end of our story from the beginning. We are called to live in faithful obedience to his word in every situation the best that we know how. And even if we make the wrong decision, our God is gracious and he's omnipotent and he can use our failures, those weak links in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Maybe Esther looked back on this episode in her life with shame and regret. Or maybe she looked back on it with a clear conscience, knowing that she did the best that she knew how at the time. Either way, each of us also has both kinds of episodes in our lives. Esther's story shows us that we can entrust those things to the Lord, and then we can move on. The band's going to come back up. And... Uh, as they do, we're going to come to communion, as we do every week. Because of Esther, she saved her people. Jesus came through them. And because of Jesus, and that's the big story, because of Jesus, we can come to communion today. And we can remember his blood that was shed for us. We can remember his body that was broken for us when we take that cracker and we break it and we dip it in the grape juice or in the wine. We can remember that no matter what we've done, God still wants to use us and he still wants to work in our lives in a unique way. So we invite you to come to communion today. We're going to worship God in song as the band plays a few songs. I invite you to worship God as you sing. Um, there's going to be people in the back to pray for you as well. Maybe you find yourself in a place today uh, where you feel guilty about your past and it's debilitating to you and you can't move forward or you can't see how God can use you 
or use that circumstance in your life. But let me tell you, God wants to use you in a powerful way, and he wants to use your story and your experiences. And if you want to pray about that, there will be people back there to pray for you. We worship God through giving. We have uh, giving offering boxes at all the exits on the side and, and in the very back. And we're going to worship God through fellowship, so we invite you to stick around afterwards also and get to know one another and um, ask somebody else how they're doing today. So let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you that um, you are working behind the scenes, even when we can't feel you sometimes, even when we don't see it. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. Jesus, we thank you that you paid the price so that we can come to you, so that we can be reconciled to you, and that we can have confidence coming to you, knowing that we are your children, that we are your sons and daughters. Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you today, I pray that they would not leave this building without meeting you, without finding out what you have for their lives. God, we lift this morning to you and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.